0: No, really. uh, My name is Eric. I'm glad to be here. Let's try this. I'm excited to be here. How about you? All right. All right. Uh, We're so glad that you are here. We're in this series called The Genius of Jesus. So this week uh, I had this idea and I was like, man, I want to use this whiteboard. And so I was like, where do I find a giant whiteboard? And a friend was like, you can actually buy this material at Lowe's or Home Depot. It's way cheaper than getting like a big old actual whiteboard. And so I went to Lowe's a couple days ago. Some of you saw me post this on Facebook and I was like, oh, awesome, I can totally fit this in my car. And uh, so I got it and it was a pretty windy day and the lady checking me out was like, uh, are you carrying that by yourself? I'm like, yeah. She's like, you're going to fly away. I was like, no, I'm good. So I got in the parking lot. I'm carrying it. And I'm like, oh man, I'm flying away. <laughs> like all of a sudden the wind picked up and I thought I was going to get taken away. Fortunately, I didn't. I got into my car and uh, I just have a normal, you know, uh, Toyota Highlander and uh, got it in there. And about this much was sticking out the back. I was like, oh man, I'm super bad at estimating sizes. Anyone else like that? Yeah, that's me. So what am I going to do? I know, I'm going to call Pastor Nate, because Pastor Nate can solve anything, right? And so I call Pastor Nate, and he's got a big truck, so we're able to load it in the back of his truck, bring it here. Nate's not in the service. Can we give Nate a hand, though, and he'll watch the video later? Thank you. And then I'll know he didn't watch the video message if he doesn't say, you know, oh, I saw you. Anyways, uh, but we all need people, right? We can't do life alone. Like, I need Pastor Nate and his truck to help me out uh, more times than I can count. And there is power in partnership, amen? There's something about doing life together. That's what's so neat about having all these families up here on stage saying, hey, we're not just parenting, we're not just in this alone. We're actually doing this in community among one another. And so I'm so thankful for this power of partnership. And that's one of the things we're going to look at this morning. If you have your Bibles, we've been working our way through the book of Luke Uh, about 16 months, and we're getting ready to wrap up our study of Luke next Sunday with the end of our 16-month journey. But we find ourselves now in Luke 22 as we've been walking through. And we're going to start at verse 1. You can follow along with me on your Bible app, on your Bibles. Otherwise, the Scriptures will also be here on the side screen. Would you join me as we read? Now, the Feast of Unleavened Bread drew near, which is called the Passover, And the chief priests and the scribes were seeking how to put him, Jesus, to death, for they feared the people. Jesus was causing a big ruckus as he came into town. Brian Stevens talked about that a couple weeks ago, and how by what he did was not just a simple parade, his entrance on Palm Sunday, but it was actually a political statement. And so the leaders of the people are pretty worried there's going to be some kind of revolt and Rome's going to come down and crush them. Like, we got to get rid of this guy, Jesus, so he doesn't make uh, a big mess of things. Verse 7, Then came the day of unleavened bread, on which the Passover lamb had to be sacrificed. Luke uses this imagery of lambs a lot. Verse 8, So Jesus sent Peter and John, saying, Go and prepare the Passover for us, that we may eat it. They said to him, Where will you have us prepare it? (laughs) no one booked a room for the Passover. All these people are in town, and, uh uh-oh, we don't have a place to celebrate because all the reservations are booked up. It's Super Bowl weekend, and we need to, you know, reserve a dining room, and everything's booked up. Uh, He said to them, behold, when you've entered the city, a man carrying a jar of water will meet you. This is highly unusual. In this day and age, men didn't carry water. It was women. And so when you see a man carrying water, oh, that's sticking out. That's uh, okay. Now we know. When you see a man carrying a jar of water, it will meet you. Follow him into the house that he enters and tell the master of the house, the teacher says to you, where is the guest room where I may eat the Passover with my disciples? And he will show you a large upper room furnished. Prepare it there. And they went and found it just as he had told them, and they prepared the Passover. Uh, Let's pray. God, we thank you uh, again for today. We thank you for all these beautiful children that you have blessed our church with. God, continue to be with these parents. Uh, We pray that, God, that you would be their cornerstone that they build their lives and their families on. God, I pray that you'd be with us this morning as we dive into uh, Luke 22. Uh, God, that uh, these would be your words, not mine. Uh, That it would be clear, uh, God, and that we would be both challenged and comforted this morning uh, as your word speaks to us. And we pray. Amen. Jesus sends Peter and John on a mission to prepare the way for his last meal that he's going to eat with his closest friends before heading to the cross. And I like to picture Peter and John a little bit like the Blues Brothers. So that might help you. So I think I have a picture. This is Peter and John. Uh, They're heading out. I like this because they are literally on a mission for God, right? Like, have you seen the movie? We are on a mission from God. And that's what they literally are on. So Peter and John. We're going to talk a little bit about them real quick. What's cool is this is actually the first time that Luke is going to call them Peter and John. Peter and John. We're going to see in Luke's sequel... The book of Acts, again and again, he talks about Peter and John, Peter and John, this dynamic duo. But this is the first time that Luke pairs them together. I wonder, who's on the other side of your and? Who's on the other side of your and? Who are you doing life with? Marcus and Jerry and Justin and Dan and who's your dynamic duo? Who should you be partnering with, doing life ministry with? Maybe you aren't right now, and you're like, man, I don't really have that dynamic duo. See, Peter is a strong speaker. He's good with words. John is strong in a steady sort of way. Peter, he's a bold guy. During the Passover meal, when Jesus tells them that one of them is going to betray them, everyone says, no, is it me? Is it me? It can't be me, God. It can't be me, Jesus. But John, he doesn't really say anything. He just Instead, he just leans against Jesus. I love that image. He's like, you know what? I know it's not me. I'm just going to lean against Jesus. When the disciples receive word that Jesus had risen from the dead, Peter and John are the ones who race to the tomb. And I love that in John's gospel, he records that John beat Peter in a foot race to the tomb. I just think that's the most amazing thing that John, as an old man, writing his gospel reflection, uh, Peter is probably long dead by then. He's like, you know what? We were competitive, we were were fishing partners before, then Jesus kind of changed us to fish in a whole new pond, and you know what, I want everyone to know for all time that I'm faster than Peter. (laughs) Like, that's pretty amazing, like, yeah, you can read the Gospel of John, that John beat Peter to the tomb. I love these two guys. Peter is bold, but John is steady, they need each other, that's the power in the partnership. That's why Jesus sent them out always in two-by-twos. It's the power of the dynamic duo If you're a comic book geek and you've read comics, not just seen the movies, you know that Batman needs Robin. uh, Because without Robin, Batman gets too violent. He breaks too many noses and gets too violent. He actually takes too many chances. But when Robin's there, he actually holds back and he's more sensible because he's also looking out for Robin. In The Beatles, Lennon needed McCartney, and McCartney needed Lennon. That was the magic of their songwriting, right? Joanna Gaines needs her husband Chip... To accomplish her vision of a whole town filled with, you know, country, chic, shiplap-filled houses, right? Like, she can't do it on her own. She needs Chip. We were watching a little bit of uh, Fixer Upper yesterday. I was like, poor Chip. He just, whatever Joanna says, sure, babe, sure, babe, you know. They need each other. And Peter and John, they need each other. So, yeah, John beat Peter to the tomb, but when John got there, he stopped. He didn't go in. But Peter, when he gets to the tomb, he races in. Because Peter's a little more headstrong, a little more look-before-you-leap. John's a little bit more cautious, even though he's faster than Peter. And, uh, you know, Peter's the one who walked on water. He's the only disciple who said, Jesus, if it's you, call out to me and I will follow you. Peter's the only one who pulls his sword to defend his Savior. Not supposed to do it, but he's the only one who does it. That, he, but that look-before-you-leap mentality also got Peter in trouble. That's why he needed John. Don't just surround yourself with people who make you comfortable. Surround yourself with people who challenge you. It's good to do life with people who aren't exactly like you. One of my favorite things is to dive into personality profiles. I love the Enneagram. I love Myers-Briggs. I love the DISC test. And I love to surround myself and make sure like, we have a team of people who have different strengths, different weaknesses. Because I know, hey, I might be more like Peter, probably, and so I need some Johns in my life, the steady, silent types who are going to be there to support me. If you're more cautious and quiet like John, if that's your personality, you need some bold people in your life like Peter who are going to push you. If you're more like Peter, you need people in your life who are going to be more level-headed and steady like John. Stop trying to make everyone like you. We all see the world differently. We all have different things that motivate us. Learn their differences, people around you. We need each other to be different. So there's power in the partnership. Second thing we're going to see is is uh, as we read on. Let's let's jump ahead to verse 14. And when the hour came, so they prepared the Passover, and now it's time for his final dinner. When the hour came, he reclined at table, and the apostles with him. And he said to them, "I've earnestly desired to eat this Passover with you before I suffer." Verse 19. And he took bread. And when he had given thanks, he broke it and gave it to them, saying, This is my body, which is given for you. Do this in remembrance of me. And likewise, the cup, after they had eaten, saying, This cup that is poured out for you is the new covenant in my blood. But behold, the hand of him who betrays me is with me on the table. Jesus has given them this rite of communion and saying, Here's how you're going to remember me for thousands of years. As we take the bread, as we take the cup that's what we'll be doing on Friday here in this room as we remember what Jesus did on the cross by receiving communion he's given them this important rite and he's telling them i'm about to suffer and die my life is going to be poured out as a sacrifice and here's how to remember me you know and, and pass this on this rite of communion and immediately after telling him he's about to suffer and die and even someone among them is going to betray him. Immediately after that, what happens next? Like You'd think they'd be like, oh, Jesus, how can we support you? How can we, okay, write this down. John, I'm not good with words, you know. So write this down, you know, like what we're supposed to do and and say to remember this, right? Verse 24. A dispute also arose among them as to which of them it was to be regarded as the greatest. What? Jesus is saying... I'm getting ready to die. One of my closest friends is going to betray me. Remember me in this important rite of communion. And immediately a dispute broke out who was the greatest among the disciples. That's why I love the Gospels. They have to be true. Because there's no way the early church fathers would have portrayed themselves in such poor light. Like, like no, they'd be like, oh no, we were all on board. We didn't do this it's like, no, nope. you know, when Luke is writing this down, you know, and disciples are telling him all about this, they're like, yeah, yeah, right after Jesus told this, we started arguing which one of us was the greatest. And he said to them, the kings of the Gentiles exercise lordship over them, and those in authority over them are called benefactors. And I picture the disciples, again, they're kind of close right now, and they're like, yeah, that's right. We want to be like those kings of Gentiles. We want to exercise our lordship. Jesus, we get it. We want to be at the top. Like, which of us, when you come into your kingdom, what else will be at your right? What else will be at your left? Which one of us are going to be the greatest? We want to be like these kings. Then Jesus says something pretty shocking to his disciples and to you and me. But not so with you. But not so with you. Jesus is saying, guys, you have to decide. We're not going to be like the kingdoms of the world. We're not going to do what we've seen everyone else around us be like which is clawing towards the top of the mountain and exercising in our lordship over everyone else below us but not so with you rather let the greatest among you become as the youngest and the leader as one who serves jesus says not so with you not so with you see here's the thing is that your glory is too small of a thing to live for My glory is too small of a thing to live for. Our own ambitions, passions, our own kingdom, it's too small of a thing to live for. So why would we? Because at the end of the life, you're going to look back on what you did, or you're going to look back on all the people that you poured into, on all the people that you empowered and set up to be successful. People are either going to say about you, That he or she gave me extraordinary opportunities to grow and to learn and to be set up for success. Or, you know what? He or she really got in my way. Perhaps you've encountered a leader like this who embodies this servant leadership. There's something powerful and extraordinary about someone who has talent and resources, but looks to empower and serve others. There's a guy named Bob Goff who I I love his book. Yeah, Bob Goff, yeah. Love Does, it's a great book. And uh, his life is just filled with that. He's, he's a lawyer who has done some amazing things uh, over in Africa and, and defending people. But just again and again, I just see him pouring into others, using his platform, using his influence to say, how can I raise you up? How can I bless you so that you can go further and farther uh, than I've ever gone. Uh, if you know a guy named Donald Miller, Bob Goff was one of the ones who really poured into Donald Miller and raised him up to become the writer and speaker that he is today. Among many, many others, Carlos Whitaker, many people. This kind of servant leader doesn't get in front of you, but he gets behind you, or she gets behind you, saying, "How can I support you?" And it's so humbling when you meet someone like that who really doesn't have an ego, who really isn't living for their own glory when you think about them, you probably don't really think about all they've accomplished in the world. But instead, you think about what they have done for you. And Jesus leads us by example. In verse 27, But I am among you as one who serves. Jesus says in another gospel, I've come as a servant. Jesus says, I've come as the one who serves. And Jesus models this radical concept of mutual submission. It means, I want to defer to your happiness. I want to defer my happiness to yours. I'm here to help you. For those of you who are in business or a nonprofit world, here's what it looks like. It's this attitude of saying, I'm here to facilitate your success no matter where our names appear on an organization chart. I'm here to facilitate your success wherever we are on our org chart. Whether I'm your boss or a couple layers up or down or wherever it might be or lateral, you know what, I'm here to facilitate your success, not just to build my own work kingdom. We have to believe that while our responsibilities differ, we are both essential to the success, the success of this organization. I hope whatever organization you work for, whatever company, nonprofit, whatever it might be, I hope you want that company, that organization to succeed and to be blessed. My father-in-law, who's written a bunch of uh, books on, on leadership and business, says believe or leave (laughs) believe in your company that what you're doing matters or you know what time to look for a different job uh don't just put your time in at the end of the day you know punch out and you don't believe in what you're doing doesn't mean you have to change your jobs now but if you believe in what you are doing if you believe in your organization then this idea of mutual submission that i'm not there just to build my own kingdom but i'm here to facilitate your success wherever our names appear in the organization chart is a powerful powerful principle And one question has the potential to drive this this value into your families, into your organizations, into your companies. What can I do to help? What can I do to help? Let's all practice saying that together. Ready? What can I do to help? Some of you have never said that to someone else in your organization or your company. Some of you husbands have maybe never said that to your wife. (laughs) And the wives are like, yeah, that's right. What can I do to help? What can I do to help? It's so simple, but the reality is it could be a game changer. It's saying, okay, Jesus says, not so with you. We are different than the world who are just trying to get every advantage so we can climb the corporate ladder. Instead, what can I do to help? How can I serve you? For those of you in management, when's the last time you asked someone who reported to you, hey, what can I do to help? How can I facilitate your success how can you leverage me for you? How can you leverage my experience, my background, my talents in a way so that you can grow? Instead of just looking at our subordinates or the people who work for us as just ways to further our own kingdom and success. instead, No, not so with you, Jesus says. We're one who serves. And this isn't just some concept Jesus is talking about that's just over here in our spiritual and family life, and then our work life is over here, the Christian life is all-encompassing. The way we act at work should be the same way we act at home. This idea that I am a servant leader doesn't mean I'm not a leader, but I'm here to facilitate your success. I'm here to serve others. And when we ask that question, here's what we're communicating. That I'm supporting you. For those of us who are followers of Christ, What that means is that here in the body of Christ, we are not individuals, but we are one body. Paul talks about this image a lot, that we are one body with lots of different parts. And our attitude as a church is to say, hey, what can I do to help? You know, I may not be a hand or a foot or an eye or an ear or a throat, but you know what? Hey, how can I help you? This idea that we're all here to serve one another, to love one another. See, the body is is a beautiful thing you know, a hand is pretty amazing, like all the things that it can do. But the reality is, if there was a dismembered hand laying on the stage over here, I'd probably pass out and faint. Because <laughs> I just know how I am around blood. And if all of a sudden there was, you know, just this little hand walking around by itself like the Adams Family, that would be creepy, right? Like, body parts aren't meant to be dismembered on their own. Body parts are meant to be together as a collective, as one Body In the same way, we're not designed to just be a hand off here on our own walking around. We're designed to be part of a family because there's power in a partnership. And what is going to drive this idea that we are here, that we are better together, is this idea of mutual submission. That's the jet fuel that's going to drive this forward. The Apostle Paul wrote about this in Ephesians chapter 5, verse 15. Look carefully then how to you walk. To one another out of reverence for Christ. By asking, what can I do to help? How can I serve you? We are all in this together. We are one body. We are one family. And for this to work, it requires a massive amount of humility. In your homes, in your families, at church, in your companies. Humility doesn't come naturally. But humility is attractive and arrogance is repulsive. You and I, it's to live open-handed. Humble enough to realize we don't have all the answers. So we need each other. We need to live open-handed towards God. And open-handed living towards our spouses. Open-handed living towards those I work with. Hey, I'm just, I'm open. How, what can I do to help? How can I serve you? I'm here just for the good of the whole organization. Not just to build my own kingdom. Jesus says, not so with you. You're not just building your own private kingdom and And using people. No, you're loving people. You're serving people. You're caring for them as Jesus served and loved and cared for us. The disciples got this. I think in the other gospel accounts it talks about how they sat down to eat this meal. And it was customary that the lowest among them would then wash their feet. And as they sat around, Peter and John, the Blues Brothers, look at each other like, Shoot, we forgot to get someone to wash the feet, a servant, what are we going to do? You know, Peter and John are like, well, it's not going to be us because we're, we're Peter and John. We're not going to wash the feet. Looking down at like Bartholomew or Thomas, like this Thomas guy, he's kind of doubting. So maybe he should wash the feet. You know, no one wants to do it. And finally Jesus, you know, he's like, ah, oh, come on, guys. Takes off his cloak, wraps a towel around, and one by one washes their feet. I think that was this powerful, powerful image of not so with you. I'm here as a servant. and I, I imagine that was such an imp- thing that left such an impression on them. Uh, years ago, I, d- I did a, a worship re- or a student retreat, and and as we broke up, um, uh, I washed the feet of my worship band and which uh, washing musicians' feet is kind of a smelly affair. But uh, I did it as their leader, and it was a powerful thing. But I think there was five of them, and it took a long time to wash five people's feet. Uh, I can't imagine how long it took Jesus to wash a dozen pairs of feet. And I just imagine it was super quiet. And all they heard was just the drip, 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 as Jesus took that basin and washed each of their feet one by one. I think that was seared into their brain. We're going to see as we study the book of Acts in the fall, Luke's sequel. The disciples got this so much, we're here to serve others, that when the time came, when those who were functioning as pastors who were called to preach and teach, they refused to give up the work of serving others by taking care of the widows and orphans. like, nope, nope, nope. It's not about us. It's not about us. We need to keep doing this. And finally... Kind of God shook them. It's like, all right, we need to appoint some other people to do this work so that we can keep preaching and praying and doing the work of ministry that we're called to do. Because that image of their Savior, Jesus, washing their feet had just been burned into their brain. Imagine with me what it would look like as a community if we had that same mentality. We're here to partner with each other. We're not going to be like the rest of the world pursuing our own kingdoms by feeling like we're too good for something. Instead, we have that attitude of Christ Jesus who came as a servant to give his life for you and me. As we close, I want to talk about the greatest prayer. This is the last part of chapter 22. There's a little twist is that this prayer won't be prayed by you or me. Verse 31. Verse 31. After they finished the meal and washing the feet, Jesus turns to Peter, as he was originally called Simon, and says, Simon, Simon, behold, Satan demanded to have you, that he might sift you like wheat. But I have prayed for you, that your faith may not fail. And when you have turned again, strengthen your brothers. Those of us who are followers of Jesus Like the disciples, we are called by Jesus into his family, called to do the work that he's called us to do. Then we get to partner with others. And when you start to partner with others, and when you start to live out this idea of mutual submission, and you're feeling what it's like to live as a gospel-centered family and community, all of a sudden you start to dream some big dreams, and you think, you know what, God? I know... You want us to dream big dreams and to do great things for you. And when we do that, when, when we were called by Jesus, and we start to partner and we dream big dreams, what happens is that hell gets a little worried. The Bible tells us we have an enemy. And when we start to dream dreams and make plans, hell comes alive. Hell gets threatened. See, hell doesn't like dreamers. You look at dreamers in the Bible, Joseph, amazing technicolor dream coat. He dreamed big dreams, and because of that, his brothers threw him into a pit and then into prison. Moses dreamed some big dreams about liberating his people and ended up spending 40 years in the desert tending his father-in-law's smelly sheep. Paul, the apostle, had this dream of planting churches all throughout the Roman Empire. Ended up putting him in prison and giving his life for that. For some reason, when hell marshals its forces against us, God doesn't circumvent that. Uh, I love football. Anyone else love football? Anyone else miss football? Yeah, I miss football. I know all you guys are into like March Madness. I'm like, man, I'm just waiting for football season to start. Uh, That's just me. Uh, I love football. And uh, if you're watching football, uh, what happens oftentimes is you have uh, the offense and the defense. And the offense, they'll huddle up, and they're getting their plan together. And they're, they're, they're doing their dream. They're getting their, their plan. Here's the play. Here's what we're going to run so we can score. And oftentimes, when that happens, the defense, they're just kind of hanging around. They're not really doing too much. But once the offense breaks and they get ready... To run their play, then what happens? The defense comes alive. And those defensive players, they start like snarling, they start cursing at their players, you know, they're like, Arr! you know, they're firing themselves up and they're getting ready to like do great violence to the quarterback to get the ball at all costs. The same is true with kind of how hell responds to us and how our enemy responds to us. When we're just kind of on the sidelines, not doing anything, they're just kind of our enemy's just kind of sitting back waiting. Once we have a dream and a plan and we want to move forward in that, hell gets written and hell comes alive. And one of the defensive battle plans the enemy will try to use is, again, to try to steal your joy. See, our enemy can't steal our salvation. That is wrapped up in the blood of Christ. Aren't you glad that our enemy can't steal our salvation no matter what? But he can't steal your salvation So he'll try to steal the joy of your salvation. And if the enemy can't steal your marriage, he'll go after the joy of your marriage. And if the enemy can't steal your God-given ability to work hard, he's going to steal the joy of work, and work just becomes something you dread instead of the fact that God created us to work and to create and cultivate and to produce. When Jesus says Satan demanded... To have you, that he might sift you like wheat. But I prayed for you, that your faith may not fail. The you there is plural. That means he's not just talking about Peter, but he's talking about you and me. And the first time I heard this, I thought, whoa, 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 Dr. Luke, you got this wrong. Uh, it's supposed to say, Satan has demanded to sift you like wheat, Eric. But I said, no, right? So, uh, Elijah, if we could just change the, the scriptures and to, to put that. I'm just kidding. Uh, you know, like, right? That's what we think. Satan has demanded to sift you, Bradley. But I said no. It's like this. It's like we're hanging off a cliff. And we're like, help, help. And Jesus comes up. He's like, what's wrong? It's like, Jesus, I'm, I'm hanging. I don't know if I have the strength to do it. I need some help. And Jesus is like, okay, I'm going to be over here. Praying that your grip doesn't fail. (laughs) What? No! No! That's not what this is supposed to do. And yet Luke records, Jesus says, Satan is asked to sift you like wheat, and I'm not going to circumvent that. I'm going to let that happen. What? Jesus, what are you doing? But there's a reason Jesus lets us get sifted. Getting sifted will build in you and me A depth of faith that nothing else can equal. See, it was the prison that made Joseph fit to lead a nation. It was 40 years in the desert that gave Moses the courage and the skills to lead a grumbling, whiny people for 40 years in the desert before they went to the promised land. We would love it if the Christian walk was wrapped up in comfort and convenience, But what did we learn last week? That we have to forsake our comfort to walk in our calling. David, the great warrior king, poet, songwriter, writes in Psalms 120, In my distress I cried to the Lord and he answered me. When is the last time I cried out in distress? When is the last time I was desperate for God? If I'm not desperate for God, maybe I need a little distress in my life. See, a lot of us, I think we want the blessings of God, but honestly, we don't want the anointing of God because with the anointing becomes trials and troubles. I wish our dreams came wrapped up in convenience, but they don't. A couple of years ago, I was at a church planning conference, and there's a, a pastor named Wayne Cordero, and a great man. He's nearing the end of his run now as a pastor, uh, but he shared some ideas on a whiteboard, that I want to share with you. And uh, it was so powerful for me. I was like, man, I've got to share these on Sunday morning. Uh, he talks about how the Christian life is like this. So uh, up here, we kind of have kind of 100%. And then kind of down here, kind of 0%. And then uh, here we have kind of our timeline of walking with God. All right. When, when you or I come to faith in Christ and we receive forgiveness of our sins and adopt it into his family and we join a community on mission together, man, that is exciting. And our zeal for God is up here, right? We're so excited. We have passion. We've found forgiveness, maybe purpose for the first time in our life. But the truth is because we've, we've just started walking with Jesus— that really, our faith level is, is is down here, but our excitement and our passion is up here, and this is called zeal. Well, then what happens? All right, maybe you know you, you, you join a small group and you, your zeal is still up here, and and that small group, as, as you're walking with other disciples of, of Jesus and followers, and you do serial potlucks like some of you guys have done. And uh, your faith gets built, right? Because nothing like a cereal potluck to build your faith. And then, but, you know, and then you sign up to do some, you know, to serve at Mosaic Church. And you're like, this is awesome. But, man, uh, you know, working in the nursery is kind of hard. And so your zeal goes down a little bit. But you know what? You know, serving other kids, that's building your faith. And your faith is growing. And then you're like, man, I really want to serve hard at Mosaic and, uh, Uh, And so you're like, you know, I'm going to join, or or, 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 do this. So maybe you decide to get baptized. And you're like, yeah, this is awesome. even a little bit more excitement up here. And that builds your faith up a little bit more. And then you've been baptized, you start serving, you're in a small group. You're like, you know what, Eric, I just feel called. I got some extra time. I'm going to be one of the, you know, uh, volunteer staff members at Mosaic and just serve in a great way like some of you guys have done. And then you realize, like, it's not all fun and roses and you have to, like, schedule people to serve in the nursery and that's really hard. And you realize Eric can have really weird quirks and your zeal comes down to here. (laughs) You're like, life is hard. What is all this? But, you know, it's building your faith a little bit because you're hanging around me and I'm quirky and weird and I'm stretching you and I'm growing you. Well, eventually what's going to happen is you're going to go through some stuff in life and it's not going to be all roses and maybe your spouse relapses in his addiction or maybe you started having kids and you want to have another one and you can't and you don't know why it's not working this time and you're in surprising season of infertility and eventually your zeal kind of crashes down to here this is your zeal. And you're like, "Man, this is tough." But see, God needs to get you to the point where your zeal and your passion is the same where your faith is. Because zeal means air, and this is all just air. It's it's nothing real. This is nothing real. And God can't build a foundation on air. He can build it on your faith. And so even though things have come crashing down, you're like, you know what? I'm going to go through 21 days of prayer and fasting with the rest of Mosaic. And this is hard. But you know what? God builds my faith. And then as we plan our first mission trip next summer, and we go on, and you're like, I'm taking that step of faith. And that's building my faith. And It's hard. And your zeal has crashed down, but your faith is growing and building. And eventually, you know, you invite someone to Easter services. And then afterwards, you start talking about this message of Jesus. And they choose to make him the leader of their life. And your faith is growing and building. And then you, you go on, and your kids are walking with God, and you get to pray with them. And, and, they, and they receive Christ, and God is using you. And what happens is that God is able to build on this foundation of faith. And Jesus turns this zeal, this kind of air, into joy. And the joy of the Lord is our strength. As our faith continues to build, even though it's hard, even though we're sifted like wheat, we trust that God is with us. And Jesus tells Peter that after you've been sifted, I'm going to pray that your faith does not fail. And when you've turned, strengthen your brothers. And when our faith has been built strong in Christ, our passion for Him grows, our joy grows, our joy becomes our strength. And that is what God can build on. God can't build on just your knowledge, on just your passion. On your training. He's showing you the level of your faith. And that's what happened to me. It's going to happen to you. And this isn't a one time thing. <laughs> we go through these seasons, I think, multiple times in life. And your faith grows. And faith is living in advance of what you'll only understand in reverse. God builds on that faith. As we look back and say, man, this was really hard. But by faith, I took that next step. And I didn't get it then. But now looking back, I understand why this had to happen. Because God used this to build my faith. Though he slay me. Though he slay me, yet will I trust him. You keep pushing, you keep growing, and it builds your faith. God says... I can build on this. This is solid ground. I can build on that. See, I wish I wish Jesus was the bridge over troubled waters. That this valley moment that's really hard, I wish Jesus could just take our hand and like lift us up and over. Woo! Boom over here, you know, like that'd be great. But the reality is what happens is life is filled with mountaintops and valleys and Jesus grabs our hand And drags us through all those valleys. You know, we come up bloody and bruised and bleeding. But Jesus says, you know what? I'm not going to let go of your hand. No matter what, I'm not going to let go of your hand. And he leads us through the valleys of the shadow of death. But it strengthens our faith. And as we are sifted, Jesus is there for us. James, the half-brother of Jesus, tells us, the testing of your faith develops perseverance. Jesus says, I prayed for you that your faith may not fail. And when you've turned again, strengthen your brothers. The greatest prayer Satan demanded to have you that he may sift you like wheat. But I have prayed for you. And when Jesus prays for you, you're gonna be all right. Whatever it is you're going through, whatever valley, whatever mountaintop, Jesus is praying for you, that your faith will not fail. I invite the band to come on up.